Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Well, you guys, the time has come. Yes, uh, so uh, Behind the Curtain is uh, going to go off the air. What? April Fools! Kevin, you made my heart leap faster than Gwen Verdon in Redhead. (laughs) Richard Kiley for me. Okay. Look who's in love. Sorry. You guys, we aren't going anywhere. And in order to ensure that, friends, we need your help. Our podcast is entirely self-produced. And like I said, we need your help. If you can, our little Easter eggs, head on over to patreon.com, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com, and search for Behind the Curtains Broadway Living Living Legends, I think I know the title of the show, and set a monthly donation. Even a dollar a month helps us. Your contributions help us continue doing what we are doing and bringing the legend stories to your ears. Have a great June. April. April. Thank you. Hi, I'm Rob Schneider. And I'm Kevin David Thomas. And this is Behind the Curtain, Broadway's Living Legends. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Broadway Curtain and make sure to join our Facebook page at Behind the Curtain, Broadway's Living Legends. And follow us on Instagram at Broadway Curtain Podcast. Plus, you can always listen to all of our episodes, old and new, on the Broadway Podcast Network, iTunes, and Spotify. Today's guest could have been one of the most charming attorneys who ever graced the bar, but lucky us, he decided to forego the courtroom for the green room. His incredible resume includes appearances in The Secret Garden, Into the Woods, Little Shop of Horrors, War Paint, Living on Love, His Gal Friday, and The Scarlet Pimpernel versions 1.0 and 2.0. Plus, plus many, many more. (laughs) We've got so much more. To tell us what it was like to work with such legends as Christine Ebersole, Marin Maisie, Renee Fleming, Kristen Chenoweth, and so many more, here is Broadway's favorite leading man, Douglas Sills. Doug, how are you today? I am Corona good. (laughs) <laughs> he's, he's i'm using that that's amazing that's, I'm, I'm gonna steal that can we steal that doug everyone's stealing in theater i love that doug i have to say i just saw you one of the last things i saw before this quarantine put us all in our homes i, I saw you in mac and mabel you were so good that production was fantastic can you tell us a little bit now this is your second time or was your second time right playing max senate yeah, that's right. Um, it was so fun. I feel so lucky that we got that in. And poor Brian and Donna, um, you know, with Love Life, uh, um, yeah, uh, show that was coming in next after us had to be canceled. So I feel really lucky. It was a great experience. Um, I had never worked with Josh Rhodes, the director choreographer, before. Um, and that turned out to be really wonderful and easy. He was so prepped and um, just so even keeled. He was just great. I highly recommend him. Um, And Socha was, you know, a dream. So it was fun and I had grown a lot since I did it. I was asked to do it about 20 years ago at Reprise, which is sort of the encore version of that they had in LA back then. And I did it with um, Jane, I almost said Kazmarek. I'm sorry, Jane Krakowski. Krakowski, yeah. And um, it was fun, but I was young, and I think I I wasn't as familiar with the pace of that rehearsal process. Mm. It was there was sort of a different aesthetic. Um, the director, who was a lovely guy, um, just I think it was about getting it up on its feet and having it be fun and fast and 
This time, I think we were all really interested in digging a little deeper, and we felt like the production side of things was covered. In other words, yeah. Encores, Encores had done this many, many times before. They were really, um, they were ready. So right. we could go deeper if, if we felt like, you know, it wouldn't hinder us from putting production on. It was a lot of fun. Um, that group uh, was just, uh, I mean, they always are at Encores. You know, there is nothing like a Broadway caliber cast um, from the smallest to the biggest. I mean, it's just been wonderful. I think that was my fifth thing I've done with them. But please ask away anything specific about it. Did a lot of research. So. Well, I was, I was going to say, I mean, did you do a lot of research on the show itself or did you do a lot of research on who Max Sennett was? Uh, or maybe both. You know, I did both. minimal research. I, my feeling lately is make the best show. You, yeah. you, you, you can do all the research you want, but the people sitting in the chairs aren't going to know the research and you can get confused by trying to align yourself with the reality that was going on at the time for this biographical character. But it can sometimes um, lead you astray in a way because you, you want to be true to something, but the audience doesn't know what you're being true to. They just want yeah. a good story. So I, I did do some, I did do research, but I had, I do feel strongly like you just got to make a good play. Mm -hmm. So, um, I did research into some some of the production in the past, but more about Mac and Mabel. And I actually coincidentally had been in touch with Jerry Herman. Uh, the first time I did the production here in LA, Jerry was involved, he was here. Um, so when this thing came up again, I reached out to him in Florida where he was living. And I wanted to go sit with him even for an afternoon, maybe even an hour, and just talk about it and about his experience writing it and just let that seep in with all the other backgrounds information you do. So I, I reached out to him and his partner was kind of say, sure, yeah, he's, he's up to it. He'd love to see you. And um, I said, great. And um, I reached out, I don't know, two weeks later and said, okay, I, I'm ready to make my plans. My, my instinct is to come down um, this week. Is that okay with you? And I didn't hear back that day, and then and that which which was unusual. And the next day, he passed, or he had passed that night. And um, I just decided that it was okay with him. Yeah. Or he or he would have stuck around. Yeah, I like yeah. that. I, I love that. You know, there. Uh, so I, you know, I heard anecdotes. We had some people come backstage who were in the original. I mean, the show has got such a fascinating history. So she did. Yeah, it was really interesting. Uh, it was really interesting, the history. Uh, uh, we had a lot of people involved with the original production speak. Uh, there was the original publicist. There was uh, a couple of actors. Um, there was a historian. And we got a lot of background information about the show and why it looks and feels the way it does now as a result of how it came about. You know, originally it was just uh, um, a series of good songs uh, that they had written and it was called, I want to make the world laugh, mm -hmm. I think. Yep. And, uh, and then this was the period of Sondheim and he had forever changed the nature of musicals. And so they decided to write a stronger book. They brought in um, Michael Stewart, I think at that point. 
or Michael had been involved and they decided to just write a more extensive book, but the songs were already written. So squeezing songs into a, a book with a lot more light and dark contrast became what we recognize now as some of the difficulty or its attributes, I guess. Um, and that's how sort of you get that tone shift that everyone is sort of like, uh, ouch, or, oh, that's great, or... So, yeah, the history was really interesting. Did you ever get a chance to see, obviously, I'm assuming you didn't see the original Mac and Mabel, but did you ever get a chance to see Robert Preston live in anything? No. No. Way before your no, time. That, that would have been something. Um, Him in uh, um, Music Man. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And, and seeing Jerry Orbach do Chicago. Yes. Those were my two big, those were two really formative experiences for me of people to emulate and just, they were just, just wonderful. When did you first fall in love with the theater? When did you s- realize this is something that you wanted to try doing? You mean professionally or just No, like right? As, we're going to no, go all the way kid, back in the beginning. Like way like young Douglas. Young a, wee, Doug. a, wee, a wee little lad, Douglas. Well, there were two experiences. One was in fourth grade. I had a teacher that wanted to do some kind of presentation. And maybe he was the music guy at elementary school. And he said, we're going to do a story. I'm from Michigan. And we're going to do a story about the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. <laughs> and he, he handed me a tape and he said, you're going to be the narrator. Go home and, and copy this. And there was some guy reading and it was like James Earl Jones. And I was like, I mean, my voice is high already. And I was in fourth, you know, and I'm trying to push my larynx down. So it sounded kind of, this is the story. Of, and, uh, but, uh, you know, just this focus was, you know, it's like heroin. And then around the same time, I went to summer camp where my brother and sisters were. Uh, it was a Jewish summer camp in Northern Michigan. And it was all camping, but every, you know, you, you go out of the campsite all, all for weeks on end for, you know, pe- canoeing and hiking and but once a summer, they did a, an abbreviated musical, and I saw my brother and sisters do it, and it, they, it was just something, um, you know, it's just like whatever. There's, there's nature and nurture, so there was like an available slot on my DNA, <laughs> and then I saw this thing, and they were getting so much feedback for it, and I was the fourth child in a household, so I was always looking for a way to, you know, make my parents and everyone sort of go, hello, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm here. It's not, you know, I know you guys are used to it, but give me a little. So I uh, love that. um, So it was probably both of those experiences that really, and then I think I opened up my mouth to sing and there was something in there that was different from what most people had. Um, So I think that was the beginning for me. So I think the first musical I did at summer camp was like outrageously inappropriate. I think it was, you know, the lead in flower drum song at this Jewish summer camp in Northern Michigan. It was not, you know, that. If I had a time machine, I know exactly what I would go back to see. That is amazing. (laughs) No, wait, what did your mom and dad do? Uh, my mom was a stay-at-home by the time I came along. Uh, she was going to college, and she would do charity work, and she had four kids, and she took care of her mom, who had had a stroke. So she was busy, and he was uh, – he had sort of a self 
self-taught commercial real estate guy in Michigan. You know, he went to law school on the GI Bill. Mm -hmm. He came back from World War II. And um, well, first he had tried several things like selling vacuums and stationary door to door. He tried several things that he just it wasn't happening. And then um, he went, took himself to law school. He had not finished undergrad, but you didn't need to, I guess, at that point. And uh, after law school, he realized in his first couple of rounds in the, at, in the courtroom, his mouth dried up and it was a it was a disaster. He looked like that Jim Carrey character when he plays the fire, the fire chief. And, oh, yeah. you, know, you know, it's yeah. everything. So he said, I got to figure something else here to make a living. And he found a mentor. And um, this guy helped him understand the beginnings and the rest he sort of did. And so he made his life um, not so much building things, but taking over things that weren't working and and helping them operate better. So that's what he did. Did you go to college for theater? I mean, was that, did you set out for that? Or did you, would you kind of go to school thinking, well, I could do this, but I also have a backup plan as well, just in case. I didn't know what I wanted. I went to the University of Michigan, and this is before they had their famous um, program. In fact, I think it was the year before. And um, I just took everything. I didn't know what I was gonna do. So I was hunting for things and I went to the music school there for a little while, like a year and tried it out much the encouragement, you know, because of some voice teacher that I con- uh, connected with. And she said, you should be up here. Wonderful lady named Rosemary Russell. Mm-hmm. And I tried it, but it wasn't for me. Um, but I really liked the education. I, I'll never forget, you know, studying opera and having to take a term of German and Italian and French and orchestration class. There were wonderful things. And I ended up taking some theater classes, but um, I took everything, math, science, psych, a lot of psych. And then um, I did do some plays and musicals there, but I was not officially in the theater department. I was not a theater major. What did you declare your major as? You know, right before, like a term or two before I graduated, I, you go see a counselor there and, and he said, what is your major? And I said, I don't really care. I thought I would probably be going to law school. And I thought, you know, the more strange my undergraduate degree was, probably the better mm. to get noticed. And I said to the person, I remember saying, you know, what, to, to what degree am I closest? To graduating on time because I had really taken a lot of different things and he said you're probably closest to a bachelor of arts degree in music voice performance if I look at all your credits right. you you can graduate well you won't be able to graduate on time because I had taken a term off I was performing somewhere and uh, so that's what I I, I graduated with not a Bachelor of Music from the music school, but a Bachelor of Arts in music voice performance. You kind of made up your own, yeah. Were you taking outside gigs while you were still in college? Yeah. Yeah, not during the college year, but in the summers. Yeah, my first paid gig, I was 17. This is my first paid gig, was of Fantastics at a dinner theater in Southfield, Michigan. Love Um, it. It was in the basement. Yes, it was in the basement all... of, of a restaurant. 
And um, it was not unlike that scene from Soap Dish where he's doing um, Death of a Salesman. Um, I was in heaven. I was getting paid. I was with theater people. We were doing something. It felt professional. But the room was shaped in an L. It just couldn't have been worse. And there was a big pole in the middle. I mean, it was of course. Just, but it was great fun. And that was my first paid gig. And I was 17. And um, I think my next paid gig was, we don't talk about it a lot, but Opryland. Oh. So there was this theme park called Opryland in Tennessee that would come through the colleges and audition. And a buddy of mine named Bob Stromberg had auditioned. And we had just done Sweet Charity together. And um, he said, I'm going over here. You want to come? And I was like, okay. And, uh, you know, they hired like 350 performers each summer. And they worked them like donkeys. I mean, but we didn't care. You know, we're just of course. kids. You know, yeah. you're loving it, loving it. Uh, so that was my next paid gig. And then I took a term off, much to my parents' dismay, because oh, yeah. a, lot of the, a lot of the kids from Opryland were going up to audition for the Radio City Christmas show. And I wanted to go. So I stayed working at Opryland into the fall. And then my parents were not having it. I mean, really not having it. And uh, they aren't, they're not mean spirited. That's not the way they parented. But they said, we, we, you know, they tried to convince me not to just finish your school and then go do what you want. And I said, no, I got to do this. I still can't believe I had the the chutzpah Youth. to go do this. And um, they said, well, we can't support you. And I said, I get it. Don't worry. I'll figure it out. And I went to New York and I slept on the floor of a one bedroom with four other people in sleeping bags. And we just go out and audition for whatever we could. And uh, I went to this audition for uh, the Radio City Christmas Hall and uh, and uh, got down from a thousand men, I think it was, or something like that, down to the last nine. And I'm sitting there going, wow, yeah, I'm, this is good. And then they called the eight, you know, it was like they stepped forward like on Drag Race. Not exactly like on Drag Race. And um, I didn't get called. And I was like, what? I later found out that all eight had done it the year before. But I didn't know that at the time. And I remember walking out of the room and there was a big window at the end of the hallway that looked over the city. This was at Rockefeller Center, I guess. And uh, I walked to the end and looked out and <laughs> so stupid. Do it. it's, like a, it's like a bad funny girl yes. moment. And I just said, you fucking haven't heard the last of me. You'll see. <laughs> yes. Who you. I'll fucking show you. You think you're you think you're done with me? Mm -mm. And uh, it was very empowering. Yeah. Oh, that's what was your uh, go-to audition song uh, in those days? What, what do you remember? What you used to sing? <laughs> um, let's see. Be my love, because it showed a high note in a legit voice. Uh, oh, sit down. You're rocking the boat. And um, this this sort of pop song that James Ingram made famous called Just Once. Oh, yeah. Just right. once. Right. right. That's it. And uh, then there were some other things like Till There Was You and um, I can't remember right now. But those were the biggies. Because, you, you know, you come in with Be My Love and you hit that high C and they're like, oh. Because mm -hmm. most of the guys that were hitting those notes didn't look like me. So 
I remember one of my first auditions, I went to the equity office and um, because I had been, where did I get my equity card early? Oh, at Pittsburgh Civic Light Opera, where I met Kathleen Marshall. She, oh. was, in, she was in it with me. And Rob Marshall was around those days. Anyway, uh, I went to, and I met this guy named Jack Guilford, who was doing a Shalom Aleichem play um, about a Jewish story that he turned on stage. And I went in and I waited all day and I walked in and he said, how can I help you, young man? And I said, what do you mean? I'm, I'm, I'm the next auditioner. He says, you know, this is a Shalom Aleichem play. And I said, yes. He says, you know who that is? I said, yes, I do, actually. He said, it's a Jewish play, son. And I said, yeah, I understand. Actually, I'm Jewish. He said, you're Jewish. <laughs> I said, yeah, bar mitzvah, the whole works. Years and years of Hebrew school. He said, well, I don't care what you are. You look like Wonder Bread. Go down the hall and audition for somebody's commercial. Now get out of here. <laughs> and I was like, I just was stunned. I was so gut punched. I, that was my introduction to being typed, yeah. typed out. Yeah. I was oh, typed quickly, out. very quickly. Not, Jew not Jewish enough. Not Jewish enough. Not Jewish enough. Not Jewish enough. And then I got a job before I was equity. <clears throat> yeah. There was they were doing a show. These guys, I forgot their names, and they're kind of famous. They had made a play that got all this rage called The Lieutenant, a musical called The Lieutenant in the late 70s that got all this information, but it was a Vietnam musical. And they, they did their next musical and they were auditioning and I auditioned a non-equity thing and I got the lead and I remember rehearsing this thing and it was called A Naughty Night in Nutty Nottingham. <laughs> oh, alliteration. <laughs> they clearly wanted to go the opposite direction from the lieutenant, the Vietnam play. Mm -hmm. And I, the only thing I remember about it is um, in the dressing room of this rehearsal space, I met, or I didn't meet him, I was too scared, but um, they were doing The Little Prince. And Michael York would put on his tights or whatever in the dressing room. And I, I just thought, oh, my God, I'm in the middle of it. I, I got here. I'm, I'm in the mix, which was stupid. Of course, I was no more in the mix than, you know, not even close. So you still, you still have that love. You still, that theater geek never leaves you. It doesn't. It just has a black eye. You know what yeah. I mean? It looks like it looks like ten miles of bad road. It's been dragged behind the truck of reality, mm -hmm. and so it is the little kid. But he's you know he's just he's tough. He doesn't look like a little kid anymore. He looks oh, like Billy Barty. He's the same size, <laughs> but he's just beat to shit. Um, so yeah, I just picture Billy Barty wearing like a Wicked T-shirt. I don't know why that's. <laughs> <laughs> But no, anyway, I totally got the you guys city. off track. Sorry. So no, it's good. We love it. We love it. How did you, uh, when did California and ACT and such uh, come into your realm? Or when did you first make the trek out to California? Was that early on? Or did you go to, was New York the first call? I mean, because it you seems know, like your presence on both coasts is, is consistent. Yeah, yeah. 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 That's partially by chance and partially intentional. So uh, simply when I was at Michigan, I, after my term off, in New York while I was still at the University of Michigan, I realized I wasn't interested in doing musical theater. I decided I wanted to do something that was more challenging in my brain. I wanted to go deeper into the characters. And I started going deeper into acting classes. And I met this wonderful woman named Alexa Kelly, who has her own theater in New York City called Pulse. And she 
and the other professors there, even though I wasn't an acting major, cast me in things like The Trojan Women and my first big Chekhov show, The Three Sisters. And it was really life-changing. And uh, when I was graduating, I took a drive with my dad, as we often did on the weekends, when he wanted to discuss important things. Um, he wouldn't have to look at you, right? He's yeah, just driving. And yeah, yeah. Look, right, right. And uh, he said, so what are you going to do after? And I said, I don't know. I guess I, guess I figured I'd go to law school. And he's like, well, what about this theater thing? And I said, yeah, but I mean, where's, where am I going with that? And he said, listen, why don't you give it a shot? I mean, hopefully if it doesn't work out in your, in your 30s, hopefully I'll still be around. Maybe I can help you go to law school if you decide to change your mind. But it seems like you should give it a shot now. Which I understand now was a very rare fatherly thing to say. And I said, really? And he said, yeah. So I, that was sort of the kick in the butt I needed. And so I applied to five graduate programs for theater. Uh, Yale, Juilliard, ACT, Southern Methodist University, and University of Washington, Seattle. Mm. And um, while I got close, it was called back in the ones I got into ACT and Washington, and I just decided I wanted to be in a big city. So I went to ACT, and that was my introduction to the West Coast. Were you doing any film and television stuff out in LA? Were you doing any pilot? Yeah, that was, that was sort of the idea. Um, I was lucky enough to get a little bit of work. Um, I wasn't really good at being unemployed. I, did, I had never sort of been unemployed. And so the first, you know, after putting in 90 days or something, one of my buddies from ACT was starting a theater in Newport, Rhode Island, and he called and he said, do you want to come and play Algernon? And um, there were two or three parts he wanted me to do in this new little theater he was creating in Newport, Rhode Island. So I left. And that sort of was, unfortunately, what I needed to do. I wasn't good at being unemployed. So I would leave, which would interfere with my momentum in LA. But um, my first gigs in LA were, um, Blake Edwards returned to television. He did this show called um, Justin Case, spelled J-U-S-T-I-N, new word, C-A-S-E. And um, it was called Justin Case. And it was like, I don't know, you guys are too young. I'm too young to know this show called Topper, where a ghost um, appears, but only to one person. And he sort of, the ghost operates through a living person. So it was a takeoff on Topper. And George Carlin was this 1940s detective who was killed on a case. And he could be seen by this beautiful young woman, uh, an aspiring actress. And uh, that was the premise of the show. And uh, I was her love interest. She faints at an audition and this paramedic comes in to rescue her and keeps coming back to the hospital to see her. That's me. Oh. I think the first and only Jewish paramedic. But the thing was, <laughs> um, it, it was, it was, I just, it was something else. Uh, so anyway, it was a pilot and it, it didn't get picked up, believe it or not. Um, there's a lot of those in my career where you think, oh, it's Blake Edwards. Well, we're on our way. But uh, no. Was the Into the Woods, when that came about, was that a West Coast audition that you went on? And, and did it come out of nowhere? I mean, it cause it seems like you were doing a lot of plays and you were really solid. Right. And, then, and then a Sondheim musical comes along, a tour from, yeah, wow. Right. I wish I could remember. I, I wish I could remember where That's I auditioned. Right. 
I can't remember where I auditioned. So I were can't you believe? Were you making trips to New York? Were you, were you going to on trips to New York? Yeah, then? yeah, I would go to New York if if Jim Wilhelm would say, "Well, no, I wouldn't have had Jim back then." Uh, yeah, I was going to New York to see things. I'm sure I was trying. I, I had my equity card by then, so I don't know. I can't remember. I'm. I cannot believe that legitimate New York musical would come to LA to audition people. There was just a real divide. You know, they would uh. think there's nobody in LA who's worth using. I, I mean, I, I would love to be wrong, but I would be surprised to think that somebody was, you know, looking for actors out there, but. Right. It wasn't because like, because some shows like Les Mis, for instance, when they opened in LA, the national tour, they would audition there because it sure. opened in there. But sure. it, what's didn't then, it open then? It wasn't like that. Yeah. Right. Right. Exactly. Um, yeah. So I don't remember where I auditioned for that. What's the first, what, is, what was the year of Les Mis? Les Mis was like 87, Six. 88. Oh, 86. Well, it depends if you mean a London. Yeah. Uh, yeah. New York. Yeah. 87. 80, yeah. Right? 87 Tonys. Yeah. Yeah. So when was Sunset Boulevard? 95. Okay. Because I remember <laughs> I had a very funny audition. Um, I had, I don't know if I saw it on a trip to London, but when it was coming over, you know, because of that whole Glen Coast Patty thing, yeah, it was coming to LA. I was in LA and uh, I just finished the tour of the secret garden. I was living in LA with my partner, Todd Murray at the time. And I got an audition for sunset Boulevard for the role of Joe. And, uh, it, at this place called the Highland Church on Hollywood, uh, Highland and Hollywood, Highland and Hollywood. Everybody knows it. It's where they were doing all the auditions back then. It was a lovely sort of interesting old church, uh, which is still there. And I was on a big sort of um, self-improvement, do the best you can kick. And I just decided, okay, here's an experiment. I'm going to do everything in my power to get this right. I'm going to start early working on the music. I'm going to have 10 songs, not two songs of my own ready. I'm, you know, I was just committed to having no excuse um, and to try and see what I could do to remove any impediments to having a good audition. And so I thought about what is my biggest thing when I walk into a room? It's usually the room gives me the willies until I adjust to the room, particularly the sound when you're singing, where is the piano? Where are they sitting? Just acclimating yourself, which takes about a minute or two or three, five at the most, but by then you're done. I mean, they've already made their decision. So I decided I was going to break into the church the night before. I see this going that direction. Wow, you didn't. And I was gonna break into the church and go in there and sing my little heart out in the room so that when I walked in, it was like my living room. Yes. So I drove my little um, beat up car up to the church. I, you know, I don't know. I thought, you know, I was Humphrey Bogart. I like parked behind a bush so no one would see. It's so stupid. <laughs> and I walked around the entire church, which is big, looking for an open, how could I get in here? Checking the doors, they all had that push bar, you know, everything's locked. And then I found a window 
hoping, hoping against hope that every entry would be barred and I couldn't go in, but I had no excuse. So I had to go around the whole building. I found a little window that was open and uh, I pushed on it and it pushed open and I was like, oh, well, I guess I have no excuse now. <laughs> and I was more lithe and a little thinner and I slipped my sorry ass through the window. <clears throat> it was dark and I was just like, I'm going to meet some security. I'm going to die here, aren't I? I'm going to die in the church. My poor mother and father in a church, he had to die, they'll say. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I found my way around and I found a big room and I thought, and I saw a table with chairs behind it. And I thought, okay, this is clearly where they're doing it. And there was a piano in the room. And uh, I turned the lights on, expecting any moment to be, and I sang my songs, Sunset Bowl, Sunset Bowl. And I did it like <laughs> 10 or 15 times. And I thought, okay, I'm hoarse. I mean, I can't do anything I had. I sang, I did, you know, I made the room my own. I looked in every corner and, and I turned the lights off and I got out the window. I said, I can't believe that worked. I drove home, I went to my audition the next day, I killed it. I mean, I killed it. I was fantastic. <laughs> I was so good. Um, I think I got called back. Uh, <laughs> I can't believe it actually, it was the right room. I can't believe you yeah. went in. I can't right? believe Right, right. And the funny thing, the irony is I didn't get it. Oh. Uh, my, my, the, the wonderful Alan Campbell got it. And um, that was that was the story is, of that of wow. that audition. I love yeah. that. Things, That's a good boy, the, story. The dedication. Oh my gosh! Right. I just wanted to see what it was like if I had no excuse for having a fantastic, you know, and you know, right. ACG was all about going out on a limb and differentiating yourself and making mm -hmm. it specific and and not having any excuses and you know all that stuff they mm -hmm. try and cram into your head. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Okay, so now tell us how Into the Woods comes about. So obviously there's an audition. What what, what did you get cast as? What was it like being on the road? I got cast. I, wait a minute. Let me think. I had a very unfortunate tragedy in my family in 1987. My brother, my, the eldest of the four of us, was killed in a very big, highly publicized plane crash oh, in sorry. Detroit. And uh, I had a very rough year after that. At the end of that year, Jim called me and he said, I have an audition for you for Into the Woods. I don't think it was an offer, not when I was that young, I suspect. So I think I came to New York. It was the fall of 88. And uh, I think I auditioned. I don't remember the audition. I must have. I'm sure it wasn't offer. It was for Rapunzel's Prince and to understudy Cinderella's Prince. Mm -hmm. And the guy who was playing Cinderella's Prince, Chuck Wagner, had been Rapunzel's Prince on Broadway. Right. Yep. And I went to see the show and uh, it was really disturbing. I didn't initially care for the music. I found it very alienating. Mm. That was a high, it was like a, you know what it is. It's like Grimm's fairy tales with spikes on it. Mm -hmm. yeah. You know what I mean? It was like, yeah. Yikes. Um, but I thought it would be good for me. I was in a really tough place. I was experiencing 
like these bouts of anxiety and depression. And I thought I got to get to work. And um, I took it and went on the road as, but we rehearsed in the city with Steven and um, James and uh, you know, Charlotte Ray and Cleo Lane and uh, Mary Gordon Murray and Kathleen Roe McCallan and Chuck Wagner and um, just a wonderful Ray Gill was the baker. He was such a mm -hmm. wonderful man. Um, Robbie McNeil, who's a wonderful, you know, TV director. He's had a huge career. Um, just a great group of people. And you really learn how to behave. You know, that was really, it was, you know, listen, that, that was a part that was pretty easy if you have the voice and, you know, the costumes, most of it. You're in this green velvet thing with a set. I mean, if you can't look good and look like a prince, you're, you're in the wrong business. Um, and you get to sing that wonderful song, Agony, which everyone loves. You don't mm -hmm. get to hear two good male voices sing together powerfully very often. So that was fun. Um, and uh, I just remember watching a lot and Stephen being, as you would expect, really specific about eighth notes and dotted sixteenths and plural versus singular, you know, he was, yep. I remember his, somebody came into the room with him once that looked just like him and he introduced him as his brother. And, um, wow. I was like, Oh my God, Stephen Simon's brother. What's that like? And it turns out he's a nuclear physicist. Of uh -huh. course, of course he is a nuclear <laughs> physicist. Um, it was a really interesting thing on the road was fascinating. Just learning how to keep your act together and, behave appropriately and show up and all the stuff that happens on the road, like sex and sex and sex and um, sex, sex. And then James asked me if I would go into his production of falsettos on Broadway. And I thought, <clears throat> yeah, I think I, he wanted me to be like wizards understudy at first yeah. and second, a second stage manager or something, believe it or not. And I'm like, yeah, I'd love that. Um, but the producers wouldn't let me out of the tour to go do it. Mm. Oh. So that, that's what the tour was like and made some lasting friendships and learned how to behave and learned how to do what an important director and, and composer lyricist wanted. Exactly. And I, I just have to ask Charlotte Ray. Um, what <laughs> I'm just, I'm sorry. I, ha I just have to ask. What, Speaking what of Billy Barty. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Grand Canyon University makes earning your degree possible with over 130 academic programs for traditional campus students with more than 80 bachelor's programs offered online. GCU provides you with the personal support you need from complimentary unofficial transcript evaluations within 24 business hours to scholarships, academic support, and your GCU graduation team led by your own university counselor. Find your purpose at GCU. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu. What what was that experience like? We she, we had her. Well, you went to her house, Rob. You went to her her, her home to interview her for our podcast. No, she she wouldn't let me in, and I had to do oh, it on the phone. That's right. You had to stay out of her yeah. house. That's right. I, I had to stay out that. of her house. I had to, so you know, I when I met her, when I met her, well, she she'd already done her big TV show by then, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um. You know, I knew her from that, but I didn't give her the kind of credit she deserved for a very impressive theater career. Oh, absolutely, I, yeah. I was unaware of her really important theater credits. Mm -hmm. um, 
you know, Beckett and I mean, everything. Uh, so to me, honestly, she seemed, um, you know, funny and sort of silly, a little bit doddery, like yeah. trying to teach her Stephen Sondheim when her brain and voice were meant for the golden age. <laughs> yeah. You know, she just, yes. it was a bit, Jack, 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 head in her sack. <laughs> the days are getting longer. <laughs> and by the time her third or fourth vibrato wiggle, she was or she missed her entrance for the next <laughs> word, you know. Uh, and I think it was, uh, she was great. You know, I think, I wonder how old she was. In, in my recollection, she was 80, but I'm sure she was like <laughs> 60 or 65. And I think it was a tough schedule for her, but she was a, she was a theater animal, I see now. Yes. But I think, you know, I was a kid, I was 28 or something, and uh, uh, I don't think I gave her the um, reverence she deserved. Also, she was kind of comedic. It wasn't like being with Frank Langella. I mean, her, yeah. her, her whole comportment was a little ridiculous, but that was what was wonderful about her. Oh, I love it. I love it. All right. So how about Secret Garden? How does that come into your orbit? Uh, I think I spent another, after Into the Woods, I think I spent uh, time looking for a job and I have to go back and see which TV things were in between, but um, trying to find my footing and is my career going to be on the East Coast or the West Coast? Should I keep yes. trying for television? No, I had this business plan. I said, um, if I can just be a supporting role on a television show as a regular, I can pick and choose whatever Broadway I want. Mm -hmm. So I was interested in television, but not for the sake of television. It was as a vehicle to make myself more valuable to a um, speaking of people. That was John Dossett calling in. Um, <laughs> Hello, John. Uh, I, I was trying to make myself, you know, I looked at Douglas Sills as a widget and said, how do we make this widget more valuable? And, you know, if you can put his name on a marquee, anybody will let you do Hamlet on broad, you know, if you can sell tickets. So I thought if that's why I kept pushing so hard with the television thing to be the theater actor I wanted to be, because I understood the exigencies of the business and what the producers faced. And I thought, you know, if I can make myself a, something you can sell tickets on. So uh, I think I was hunting for work and uh, I had earned my, my union card, as I mentioned, at Pittsburgh Civic Light Opera in 1982 summer. They did six shows and Susan Schulman was the artistic director and she directed like four of the six shows, I think. So that's where I met Susan and we had already had, you know, and she was directing The Secret Garden. I think you know, she had me in, I think I auditioned for Archie and I think she felt I was just not, I didn't appear old enough. I had a pretty baby face, pretty much baby face and a high pitched speaking voice like now. And um, so she made me Neville and understudy Archie on the road. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was, uh, it, it's a very healing show as you can imagine, you know, it's just um, a show created by women and um, a really forceful team of like five women making that thing happen and um, it was beautiful. 
Hey, podcast listeners, are you looking for a place to rehearse in New York City that is clean, spacious, and most importantly, affordable? Come check out Shetler Studios and Theaters, our wonderful host for these podcasts. Shetler is centrally located on West 54th Street between Broadway and 8th Avenue, right in the heart of the theater district. Right in the heart, you'll find music, dance, and acting studios, complemented by two black box theaters and six presentation venues. The professional facilities, inspired environment, and expert industry staff combined to provide the New York artist with an unparalleled studio experience. Visit their website at shetlerstudios.com That's S-H-E-T-L-E-R studios.com Shetler Studios and Theaters is our home for recording the legends of Broadway and we hope that you make it your artistic home too. That's Shetler, S-H-E-T-L-E-R studios.com. See you here. And so once Secret Garden wraps itself up, so back to L.A., right? Not right away. Um, there was a wonderful old actress playing Mrs. Medlock, and she was so sweet. I, I, I left the tour before others, and I went back to New York, and I think I must have auditioned and looking for my next gig. And um, so I didn't go back to L.A. right away. I still had an apartment there, but I, did, I, I went to New York looking for work first. Um, but still didn't have my own place, you know, like most mm-hmm. actors, just bed hopping and um, <laughs> then back to then back to LA, I think, to audition for television and hope for that supporting gig. You know, there was um, I forgot what year it is, but Daniel Day Lewis did My Beautiful Laundrette and A Room with the View, and they both came out at the same year, and uh, they were such dynamically different characters, and I was like you know, that's what I want to be doing. If I can create a very dynamic pair of portrayals, that's going to launch me. That, that was another inspiration for me, what he was doing. Um, yeah. Because, you know, the guys I wanted to be like were Gilgood and Alec Guinness and Olivier. Mm-hmm. And so anyway, that's yeah, what was going yeah. on. So w- waiting for that to happen, right? Waiting for those two opportunities to arise or try to make them arise. And so then at what point do you start to go, maybe the law school thing, maybe I'll try that again. <laughs> the old backup um, plan. When does the yeah, backup plan become I reality? I, was, I think I was in LA and I just thought, you know, a lot of the stuff that was coming down the road were these sort of, you know, I did this television thing with, one of my guest star spots I remember was on a, a Christine Eversol show called The Kavanaugh's. And I played this sort of, you know, handsome, listen, it's a great thing that I knew I didn't feel like that on the inside, so I can toss it around casually. But, you know, you get these sort of shallow pretty boy things. And it just, I was running out of patience for it. And I recognized that my face and body didn't lend itself to um, Strindberg. Yeah. and. I just thought, you know, if this is how it's going to be, maybe, you know, if this is what's going to come down the pike, I think I'm done. Mm. And, you know, being penniless and powerless, it takes its toll. And I just thought, I think I'm done. I just didn't like begging for work and the stuff that was coming. It just didn't make sense. Once you got a, a guest star spot, you'd get there and you're like, this is the Holy Grail. I'm sitting in my trailer for eight hours. They have you come on set. You work through it once, maybe twice. You film it and you're done. And then you don't even get to pick the take. It, it's so Emperor's New Clothes. I was like, yeah. something's wrong here. I got to get out. By then, my LSATs had expired. And 
I told my agents, don't send me out anymore. And um, I took the Kaplan class again. Anyway, so I went through it and I took those tests and it went really well. That was a shot in the arm. And I started gathering my applications. A really good buddy of mine who's a very successful TV writer now uh, named Oliver Goldstick. He had written a play about Dinah Washington that he asked me to produce here in LA. It's called Dinah Was, and we produced that. I coached a little bit. I was trying to find my way as I was collecting um, applications. And mourning this thing that had taken up so much space in my life, inside my body, mind, my spirit, mourning this death, I had to kill it, this being an actor. And it was, it was monumental. It was, you know, I felt like I should have a wake. Like we should put out a casket and we should just have a party and be silly, but at the same time mourn this death. And my agent, Flo Rothaker, she said, listen, I know you're not auditioning anymore, but this thing came in. I just think you should take a look at it. Don't yell at me. Just take a look at it. And I thought, Flo, it's okay. Don't, don't cower. It's okay. And that was the Scarlet Pimpernel. And um, she said, do you know this piece you've heard of? I was like, yeah, my mom used to, I remember my mother watching it late at night and she said, this guy's really good. You should watch this guy. So that's how the next period went. And that's how I got sidetracked from my real life. So let's, let's go uh, talk a little bit more about Scarlet Pimpernel. So you go in, you have this audition, obviously it goes well. And what, what was it supposed to be at that point? Was this just a workshop? Was this, hey, we're Broadway bound? What's, what, where were we in the development of all this? You know, they called me, come to New York, audition. I, I, I went to New York and on my way, I heard that a very favorite aunt of mine had passed. Mm. She was my New York relative. And she was so dear to me. She and her husband had a very famous dairy restaurant, Jewish dairy restaurant on the Upper West Side, which is now Leitner's Linens. And um, I just thought, I am not missing another life ritual. I'm not. I, I want my life back. I'm not going to this audition. So I canceled the audition. I, I just thought, it's not meant to be. And I went to my aunt's funeral the plane was late. I ended up racing to her funeral as they were putting this pine box into the ground. I'm running up to the hole in the ground in sweats because the plane had lost my luggage. And I said, listen, I've given up a lot. You have to stop. And there were these four guys with ropes on this box, lowering Aunt Tessie into the ground. I said, you have to stop. And there were like six or seven family members there. I said, you guys all stay back there. You have to take the top off that coffin. And they're like, what? I said, I have come across the country. I've given up an audition. I, I've got to see her before you put her in the ground. I don't know what the fuck possessed me, but they did it. And they pushed what? the box. They opened the box for me because, you know, in the Jewish faith, there's no nails. It's all wood. There's no, it's not nailed shut. So they pushed the thing aside. There she was. And it was leaning, so her head was kind of pushed up again. So if you're ever lowering a coffin into the ground, keep it level, because the person's like going like this. And um, I thought, wow, she looks good. Okay, 
And I thought I would have some kind of epiphany, but we said hello to each other. And I said, okay, put it back on. Anyway, I missed the audition. They call me later the next day and said, hey, Pimpernel's going to LA. Do you want to still audition? I was like, oh, really? Sure. And I thought I prepared the fuck out of it and then just disappeared. And I thought it was like one of those theater things, you know? But here it was coming back to me. So I auditioned for them in LA. I walked in, Frank, who else was there? I guess Bill Haber was there. Peter Hunt, the director was there. Um, Nan Knighton was there. And they had you doing like three different scenes, which were very tricky. Not for a classically trained actor because one was like heroic, one was funny, one was romantic. And uh, I first sang a song for Frank and my partner at the time, Todd said, uh, sing this one. And I thought, okay, because I didn't really know Frank or anything about him. And he said, this is a good song. And it was someone like you. So I thought, okay, that sounds good. I like the tune. So I put it in a key that was good for me. I walked in I, and they said, what are you going to sing for us? And I said, someone like you. And I saw Frank go like, what? Like, why is he singing? Yeah. Right. And I said, why is it? A, is that a bad choice? Did I do you not want to hear it? He said, no. He said, I just never heard a guy sing it before. And I thought, oh, I didn't know it was a woman's song <laughs> because there's no pronouns in it. Right. It's someone like you, someone like me. Right. So yeah. Love me. Yeah. Right. So I sang it and he's like, oh, that was really good. Can you sing it a third higher? And I was like, yeah. he said that. <laughs> So I sang in a third higher and he said, now this time blast me out at the end, just make it as strong as you can. So I did and then I read and I could sort of feel it was going well and they laughed at the funny stuff and that was it. And then there were like six more auditions. Like they wanted to be sure that it was what they thought it was. They had to see it over and over again. And meanwhile, they're, they're asking Kevin Klein to do it. They were looking for like names, you know, well, big, yeah, not, sure. not that you're not a name, but like- No, no, I was, I was like no name. That's why they were unsure because mm -hmm. they had never seen it. They'd never seen me. Anyway, by the sixth or whatever it was, I was like, I can't do this again. It's too much stress. Cause you think your life is gonna change anyway. Yeah. They finally said, okay. You know, I went to my agent and I said, I'm not, if they don't know, I'm not auditioning again. And while I was standing with Flo at my agent's office, she said, well, you got it. And, um, that was how that happened. And so then, so then it, what happens once it starts to get in front of an audience? We're leaving the rehearsal room. Now we're in front of an audience. Right. So the audience is going crazy. I'm exhausted. I remember the first run through in costume. I just, I was soaking wet. I lay on the floor, my dressing room, the Minskoff, almost in tears, soaking wet. My dresser's peeling stuff off me and I was, I just thought, I can't, I, can't, I can't do this. There's no way I could do this again, let alone eight times a week. Well, I did. You figure, you figure it out. Right. Um, anyway, they were going crazy. And they, I think the team maybe above me ran out of steam a little bit about what other fixes to do if I had my hands full trying to make it my own. But um, I don't remember a ton of changes going in. But when we opened we got killed. 
And I didn't. I was singled out in a very positive way. Yeah. And that's a difficult thing. Um, it's a difficult with your co-stars. You know what they're going through. It's difficult to do musical because everything's riding on you. You have to show up every night. People are coming to see you. Um, you feel responsible for keeping these other 150 people employed. So I was going outside the theater every night and spending whatever time it took so that everybody had every picture and every photograph, every signature they wanted so that we could build some kind of internet following, which hadn't occurred really except for Jekyll and Hyde. At this point, there was no, people didn't really take that seriously as a, as a force in the business. Right. So we had, we got these followers and um, the show sort of pushed along. And then Bill Haber and Pierre Cosette, who had been the producer of uh, Will Rogers' Folly, decided to sell the show to Madison Square Garden Entertainment. Madison Square Garden decided they wanted to have an entertainment wing and they thought they knew how to fix Pimpernel and keep it a lot of elements, but they wanted it to be the family entertainment icon of their new theater arm. And that's how it got, you know, it's 2.0. And how to, and tell us a little bit about what the 2.0 process was like. You, you, you shut down for a week. Is that right? Yeah, um, you know, I went, uh, the, they had gotten this money guy named Teddy Forsman, who was a huge hedge fund guy to back them. And Teddy came in and he said to me, listen, I, I don't want to do this if you're not going to do it. And I said, Teddy, listen, I'm exhausted and there's nothing for me. I appreciate it. I'm flattered, but I've done this and I, it turned out well for me. And honestly, what, what's the upside? I mean, I saw... I saw a headline that says Sills should have quit while he was ahead. You know, I didn't see any reason to go forward with it. He said, well, I don't really want to do it if you won't. I, he said, what would it take? And I said, money. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. So, so he came up with the money and um, I agreed, but it was very tough because I was very tight with and loved Christine and Terry. They had created that success with me for myself. And, um, the fact that they were not going to continue forward made that last month or two very dicey. So we're rehearsing one version during the day and doing a different version at night. And people would say to me, isn't this hard? You're doing one show at night. And the hardest part was Terry and, and Christine. That was, it was just difficult. They were being sort of let go and there's just no good way to do it. Um, but for me, it was always one of the things I dreamed of was, was being in a, Ever since ACT, I wanted to be in a rep company. So it was very much like doing a rep company um, and just doing your second or third production of Hamlet or whatever it is. So you know the lines, but it's going to be a little different. So that's how that went down. And then the review came out and it was a very good review for the show and for me. They loved it. Mm -hmm. um, but essentially, I think it was too late. The, the zeitgeist, the, the feeling they were they didn't or were not able to overcome was that it was just kind of a mm show even though the new york times had said it's great go mm -hmm. see it it was mm -hmm. sort of too late the brand had been established about for better and for worse and it's pre it's pretty hard then to change that dialogue once that's been established i, I think people right. understand now more so about having to change you know the impression of something i think people understand that you really have to have a, like a war room plan to yeah. dump the internet and dump in the papers and really create a whole new 
So, yeah, it's a whole new beast, but so smart of you at least, and probably others to realize so that there was a social media thing that could be garnered from all of this. Yeah, although I don't think ultimately it saved the show, but yes, I think it probably kept it open much longer. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and that's yep. that's very, very impressive. Um, I wanted to ask you a little bit about the on the twentieth century concert you did. What what was that experience like? There's so many clips of it that keep popping up onto YouTube, and it is just stunning and gorgeous. And you know, it was a really magical night. The, the actress fun to ask me if I wanted to do it. I don't know how familiar I was with the piece. Um, I don't think I had known Marin very well. I don't think I knew the director Peter Flynn very well. I don't mm-hmm. remember. Um, but I was like, yeah, what the hell? What was the year? Do you know? 2005? Yeah. Oh, was it? Yeah. So, uh, well, then I did know Marin. Okay. Um, it was just, you know, one of those things you have a week, I think. Right? And a lot of the people are in Broadway shows. I don't think I was. I think it was after Little Shop. I think it was after the Soundhead Festival in dc and uh-huh. you know we went in rehearsal it was fun but you just you can't imagine this is going to come together you just you can't imagine it's going to come together mm-hmm. it's chaos <laughs> um and it's a very tough score and peter was so good at it but it was very involved and he had wonderful people like the four guys from altar boys were in it as the porters mm-hmm. and joanne Worley was in it <laughs> and 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 Sieber was in it and uh, Brad Oscar and um, was oh, like, Brooks, I was like, Brooks, Brooks, Ashmanskis. I mean, it was just great, great people. And um, again, I just tried to do whatever I could to make it. It was a one night thing. I think it was the first time I tried propanolol. I had heard about this performance anxiety drug, which is a beta blocker. And yeah. I just knew that I'd be week the first show and if there were more shows i'd be much better at the second third fourth show but you weren't going to get that it was a one night thing i tried it one day at like a half of one it seemed okay and i used it that night and i remember it was actually really helpful in not going to that anxiety red zone you're still nervous but and it was just great fun and it was a big broad character and i just had a sense that I knew this guy and I'd been inspired by other big, you know, the, those heroic sized characters are all over literature. They're not as prevalent in musical theater, but if you've done Shakespeare or whatever, those big characters are there. And part of the training at ACT was to fill the stage, fill the room when, the, when it was called for. Um, Marin was hysterically funny. Everybody was funny. And we just did the best we could and uh, tried to be off book. And <laughs> it was, um, we didn't really know what we had, but during, it was like a rock concert. Like it was one of those special nights and people still say it was one of their most favorite nights uh-huh. watching something in the theater. It's, there's, a, there's a video of it, but it was, it was very fun. Yes, and then, it- this guy, uh, Bob Greenblatt, tried to, he loved it, and he was childhood friends with Marin, and he tried to produce it. But there was a hang-up with, at this time, Betty Comden and her agent, and Phyllis Newman and her agent, and I think Bob felt he didn't have enough leeway to do it right. He needed to be able to 
punch up the script with more current jokes. And I think Betty calmed in and said, listen, I'm, I'm happy to rewrite, but it all has to be mine. And he was, I think that wasn't good for Bob. So it never got made. And we oh. were sad. I know he wanted to. And Marin and I wanted to. And it was always one of our favorite things. Oh, yeah. it would have been great. Is there a bucket list role that you still want to tackle that you haven't been able to sink your teeth into yet? You know, I get asked that. They just asked me that at, at reprise and at encores. Um, I mean, would I like to play Richard III? Yes. Would I like to play Cyrano? Yes. Um, would I like to play um, Harold Hill? But, you know, obviously that's not going to happen now. You know, the man himself is doing it. Um, you know, would I like to play Nathan Detroit? Yes. Um, you know, yeah. Strindberg, the father. Um, sure, there are some wonderful... I, I, I like creating something new, but there are, old, you know, pre-existing shows that I could be um, tempted into. I guess those are some of them. And then my last, my last question for you is, is, you know, what, what do you want to say to anyone that wants to get into this business? What words of wisdom do you, do you wish to pass on? You know, it, the business is every, so it's like, again, a snake molting. It, it sort of changes itself every five to 10 years so much. Um, it's hard to give someone advice. I guess if performing, if you can't do anything else because your heart is set on it, then I guess, you, you got to do it. But I think, I mean, I can talk at length about a lot of different aspects of it and about what interested me, but it depends on your goals. If what you want to do is to voice animated characters on television, you know, that's a whole different set of advice than it is if you're interested in dancing in a Broadway chorus and being the best at it, which is different from playing leads on Broadway in straight plays, which is different from if you want to have a, a regional theater career or you want to work at Ashland Shakes and just make your life there as I have friends. You know, so those pieces of advice are very different. Somebody asked me to meet with a young man that he was interested in training in a classmate of mine had started this or was running this program at is it the University of Minnesota in Minneapolis. His name is Scott Freeman. He now has a big training pro program in New York City. And he said, I was touring with Pimpernel, which was, that was Pimpernel 4.0. Um, and he said, Douglas, will you meet with this kid? I really want, he admires you and I want, I want him to come to my training program. He wants, he has some questions. He wants to know if he should go to a musical theater graduate school or if he should train as an actor. And I said, okay. Um, sure, Scott, anything for you. What's his name? Just tell him to call me or come to the theater. And his, uh, he said, his name is Santino Fontana. <laughs> and I said, sure. And so Santino and I talked at length and I said, you should get, you know, you, I'll turn you on to a voice teacher. I'll turn you on. You can take dance class. But I think if you really want the career that you're talking about, I recommend you going to a straight theater program where you study plays and the construct of a, of a monologue and you can create a character from the ground up and have it be unique. And um, that's what he did. And I introduced him to Joan later when he got to New York and, um, and there was Santino. So I guess I would say 
you know, surround yourself. When you see work going on that you like or that you appreciate, that you think is important or high, it transports you, find a way to be around it. See everything you can there or from that person or whoever created that piece and just say, listen, I don't need to be paid. I'll get coffee. I just want to be here in this, whether it's a producer or a director or a general manager or a theater, you know, find, make yourself magnetized towards the work that you like. Um, and thereby you create an appetite and a palate for high-end work. And I'm not a big fan of studying musical theater. I think you should be studying the humanities. You should study everything so that your work is not derivative. I, I find that a lot of people that go into musical theater and undergrad, they're doing the, some version that's sifted through the 10 versions of Curly they've seen or read or watched on YouTube. And it's not theirs that's been created from the ground up because they haven't been taught how to do that. Um, so I guess those are some of the things I would say to a, a young person. Oh, that was I, good advice to this older person. So yes, that was, <laughs> I, I was like moved, very moved because you just reminded me of the things that I'm missing. And I thought, oh my goodness, you're right. Go, surround yourself with great art. I mean, that is, that's no matter who is listening, yeah. that is good advice. I mean, that's really. Yeah. I think also something I didn't do, which I think you can do more easily now is, you should see your career as a two-lane highway. Uh -huh. not, just, not just waiting for auditions and then killing it at the audition. Waiting for auditions and making yourself ready, but also there's another road that are things you are initiating, whether it's play readings or making a 10-minute film or making an app or so good. Um, you know whatever it is that you want so that when someone says to you, what do you want to do? And you're also not dependent on waiting. You don't have to wait. You can be working on other things. And so I think whether it's doing play readings in your, you know, with a group of friends or, or writing one act or a 10 minute play, you know, you, you, it's best if there are two um, ways to be working. One is coming from the outside and one is initiated from within. I think that's fantastic. Doug, I can't even tell you how much we appreciate you taking time out to be with us today. This has just been so great. Just we should great. do it again, and I'll tell you the story of when um, Patty Lapone flashed me her decolletage completely. <laughs> I, I still have it. I, I, I couldn't believe, I could not believe it. She, she is so full of piss and vinegar. So if we do it again, I'll tell you some. Definitely. Um, what a what a cliffhanger! Definitely, definitely. What a cliffhanger to leave us on! <laughs> definitely, <laughs> my God! All right, well, everyone, th take Doug's advice, and if you want to see great work and great art like Doug is suggesting, just go see Doug in a show. Oh, exactly, that's so sweet! You'll yes. see it. You'll absolutely see it. All right, till next time. Take care, everybody. Thank you, guys. Thank, thank you. you. Stay safe. Thank you. Oh, thank you, Doug. Stay safe out there. Today's episode was recorded at Shetler Studios on 244 West 54th Street, 
Visit Shetler Studios to book your room today, and you could be as cool as us. That's S-H-E-T-L-E-R studios.com. And a big thanks to our sound editor, Daniel Schwartzberg, and social media manager, Bethany Ann Selecki. And friends, don't forget, we want more folks to hear these incredible stories, and that's where you guys can come in and help us out. Yes, in order for people to find out about us, we need lots of ratings on iTunes. The more ratings, the more they'll come up in searches. So head on over to iTunes, search for Behind the Curtain Broadway's Living Legends, click on our logo, click on ratings and reviews, then write a review and leave us five stars and make us feel as special as Eliza Doolittle on Eliza Doolittle Day. Or you can leave us one star and make us feel as bad as Annie did in that weird production in Boston where Annie dreamed about being adopted and then ended the show back in the orphanage. True story, Rob was there. I saw it. So head on over to iTunes and make us feel even more special than we already do. Have you ever wondered how your favorite performer actually feels? Well, here's your chance. Welcome to The Quiet Part Out Loud with me, Bobby Steggert, Broadway actor, and now a therapist to a whole host of Broadway creatives. Part interview, part therapy, this is not your typical podcast. We'll go right to the heart of things with some of your favorite artists, what they still struggle with, what lessons they've learned, what they haven't figured out yet. There's enormous power in saying the quiet part out loud. Are you listening? Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.